Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, my friend, welcome to The Burn. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. What if I told you we don't have an obesity epidemic? We don't. We have a midlife muscle crisis. People lose their discipline. And when they lose their discipline and lose their muscle and then become obese, the body doesn't know what to do. Isn't that accurate? Yes, yes. So tell us more like, why has this country become so fixated on obese and then it's, it's this diet, it's that diet, rather than actually tackling the problem, which is people's bodies aren't equipped to handle what's going on in their bodies. Absolutely. There, there's a couple reasons why I believe. Um, number one, the first question you always have to ask is who stands to benefit? Who stands to benefit from whatever message that we're putting forth? Is it the patient? Is it in the patient's best interest? Or is it potentially a money-driven conglomerate, right? So if we constantly focus on adiposity, being overweight, well, then we can address the diet fixes that are going to potentiate that or the Nabisco's or the processed foods. And we're constantly, we have this smokescreen, right, of continuously focused on adiposity, which is, you know, an overweightness, which is a complete smokescreen. It is symptomology of an undisciplined life. It is, and you know, again, I'm not saying that everybody who is struggling with obesity has, you know, has an undisciplined life. There are definitely metabolic uh, contributing factors, but for the majority of people, I will tell you this, there are only 23% of the population is meeting their physical activity requirements. 23%, 73% of adults are either overweight or obese. So the question is, if in fact we have an obesity epidemic, then we've identified the problem. And Ben, as you and I know, if you identify a problem, you can execute on that problem and you can fix that problem. However, if you have the wrong paradigm of thinking, then no matter what you do with underneath that paradigm and you execute appropriately, you will never get from point A See, to, that, to point B. Okay, to, that's fascinating that. because obviously in my work with athletes, business professionals, high performers, same way that you're working with them every single day, I understand the importance of great discipline. But if the great discipline is in the wrong area or it's it's spent doing the wrong things, you're actually going to – you're telling yourself you're disciplined doing it, but you're compounding the wrong thing. Is that what I'm hearing you say? That's right. That's exactly what I'm hearing you say. And we now live in an environment where they are they are still hyper-focused on the wrong thing. We are, by focusing on obesity, we are making people unable and ill-equipped to deal with their own life in an effective way. Rather, so if we focus on obesity, that's what we're going to get. Rather, if we shift to this muscle-centric capacity and this muscle-centric perspective, you become stronger physically. And you and I both know the only way to become physically stronger is to become mentally stronger. Absolutely. When you think about that, you have to think that there's there's really two ways that it, our health goes. One way is that it's, you know, it happens to us, right? It, it just happens. You get older, you lose muscle versus you execute, execute, execute. You do the harder thing. We realize that we live in an environment that is constantly fighting against us. It's true. We live in a hyper palatable environment. There's cookies, there's cakes, there's elevators, there's escalators, whatever it is. And we're living in an environment that is 
slowly going to deteriorate our health and our brain. That's exactly what happened to Betsy. Betsy had constantly struggled on that treadmill, like the hamster wheel of life of trying to figure out the next fad diet, the next thing to do, which by the way, is a distraction. All of the other things out there, it's all distraction as opposed to like, I know you just completed 75 hard as opposed to executing. Here is your plan. Nothing is going to deter me from my plan. I understand what I need to do and I'm going to execute, execute, execute. Everything else is an excuse. So the thing to me, and it's the excuses that get in the way. And that is what is so fascinating and so brilliant. I tell Andy this all the time about the 75 hard program. And then, you know, to have the app. I mean, every time you click like you did your workout, it is a endorphin shot. It is a dopamine shot. And it is like I did what I said I was going to do. And you know that like I'm not hitting that button. Because if I, if I miss hitting that button, I go all the way back to zero. And some people when they understand that's how you create disciplines, it's stacking those habits on top of each other, you almost become a, or obsessed to those dopamine hits and those, and it feels so good and you're not gonna quit on yourself. I always say, and I joke with Andy, I'm like, isn't it crazy that people could follow through with this program and then go to their job and not do the most basic things because they don't have to click the button on the app. And it is just, nice. it's mind blowing to me how people build their behaviors and their disciplines. Eric Rock, welcome to The Burn. Well, the hell of an, an introduction, Ben. Thank you so much. What is The Burn for you? What is it that caused you to put in the work in order to build your businesses, which gave you a platform, which helped you build a very successful mm -hmm. life and have an amazing story? But also, I want you to touch on this as well, because I, I think this is important. One of the things that I respect about you so much is as a coach, you're also the example of living a disciplined life. It's not just mm. success in making money. It's a disciplined life in taking care of your body and your mind. So you're one of those individuals who gets it done in all areas. So I know the burn is significant. What is that burn for you, Eric? Yeah, and I totally agree with you. Um, the two most precious things you own, from my perspective, are your emotions um, and your health. With, without those two things, I, I, money does nothing for me. That's just a byproduct, which we've talked about. It's a byproduct of, of what I'm really after. Um, and for me, I'm a very obsessed human. Everything I do, I obsess over, almost to a fault. And for so much of my life, I was told that it's not okay. People would look at some of my instincts and try to silence them or kind of contain them, get them smaller. And I was felt like I was my whole life I was fighting for something. Uh, I've never met my biological father. He abandoned my mother when, when she was pregnant with me. And she was just a kid herself at a very young age, a teenager. I think she might have been 19. Um, so I grew up into the in the world um, with with no father. And it's really important to have, I think, that male figure in your life, undeniable I did have a stepdad who, who I'm very grateful for, who entered my life when I was a young kid, but he was not easy uh, to be around. He was, uh, it, was a hard, it was a hard existence as a child for me, but I'm actually very grateful for it now. Nothing was handed to me. Everything was a fight, a literal fight as a child. Um, and you know, when you're a child and you're working for something, I was, I was working for something at a very young age. It instilled these neural pathways, I think, in my mindset that just made me stay in the pain longer than the next guy. Um, wherever your pain comes from in life, mine happened to come from, from a lot of these childhood experiences in, in myself, even though I still will say I'm blessed and was grateful because there were so many kids that had it worse. But sort of wanting to be seen and wanting to be loved, just the fight for that alone 
created an excellence in me and a standard in me at a young age that was just rare. It wasn't common. I was obsessively clean. I wanted everything to be perfect. I was a straight A student, even though I wouldn't say I was that smart. I found ways to get the best, uh, even at a young age, best grades. I always found a way to get the best of whatever and through high school, even on. But um, that obsessive trait went the wrong direction for a while. But it was instilled in me at a young age because I was fighting for something that a lot of the kids around me weren't fighting for. Mm. Jesse Lee was able to see something in me that I didn't even know existed. And and that's where our relationship started. And we just, up to be honest, we never left each other. Um, we spent a lot of hours communicating, talking. We created our own little mastermind. She has such a powerful influence on everything you see today, Ben. Um, the combination of her and a few people, really, but she was really the heart and soul of everything. One of the most powerful influences in my life. There's a few people when I close my eyes and I look back and I can just smile now thinking about like my grandma who passed away, uh, my grandma who's still living today, um, Jesse Lee, Ed Milet. There's a, there's, a, there's a handful more. My cousin Trent who taught me how to work out. Even my mom and dad just for, the, for the, some of the scar tissue that I adopted out of, out of the years of, of things that most people might look at as, as something not great that I'm like, no, it was such a gift. Like... Mm. I wish they would have known to frame it differently, but thank God for that. But she was one of these people. She taught me to be courageous in a way that I'd never seen. I was on, I was on the phone with her the day she got the, 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 the full body MRI scan back that says mm. she probably has really bad cancer. Like it lit up really bad. And Ben, I got to just say this, give this testimony to Jesse Lee. This is so profound. We were, you had I was no, just with you had no idea I was going to go here. No, I, I, I didn't. I, I didn't even know you knew we were, we were connected. Um, I could light up about her. And I say standard over feelings all the time, but like you are living the standard when most people would choose to not do it. So, Jesse Lee, this is a long time coming. Welcome to the burn. Yeah. Wow. Amazing intro. Thank you. You don't have to do what you're doing right now. Why do you continue to do it? Beyond, beyond just the energy. Go go deep as to the, as to what that burn is. Yeah. Uh, so Ed warned me the other day, I was on the phone with him and he said, your interviews and your conversations and your coaching and everything you do will never be the same after going through this, this cancer battle. And I was like, really? Like, is it that serious? And he said, it's that serious. And as soon as you asked that, I'm like, you know what? I think in the past, even if it would have been a past, you know, a couple months ago, I would have said something like, it's just legacy or I'm playing for people who don't believe in themselves yet. Or um, I want to show people really what's possible or, or something like this. And more than ever right now, I think my answer to that question is totally different. I think it's, this is maybe more vulnerable than I expected to be, but I want to show myself that anything really actually is possible. I want to show myself that everything I do has never been in vain. I want to show myself I'm proud of me. I have a lot of inner work stuff that going on right now because I think a lot of this is just caused from emotional trauma, honestly speaking. And what causes me to show up is knowing I've worked so hard and maybe now it's time to, like in my own way, enjoy the fruits of my labor while doing life the way that I want to do it. I don't know if that makes sense. Like I have so much joy when I work. I love being a top performer. I love looking at myself in the mirror and saying, yeah, I did that. I love looking back on the things that I've done and, and saying, I chose to show up on the days when I didn't want to. And I chose to show up when stuff was really hard. Look at the hope that I gave not only myself, which is what's happening every time I show up, but the hope that I'm able to show 
to people who are also going through whatever their battle is. You mentioned that strength comes through the adversity. You know, it's when the muscles grow. And this is no different. This is just a bigger test um, than ever before. So I've just been showing up to prove to myself that I can. And now it's just a, like, a, like a completely different level that I've never experienced before. Well, I, I I remember watching, you know, my mom as a as a young boy, and I always reference, you know, for an audience that there's, you know, my little eyes were watching how my mother showed up, and what I'm hearing you say, which I think is so powerful, is you, know, you can go and build a following, right? But it's a following that you care so deeply about to coach and to move and to inspire that, you know, think of all these eyes that are watching you. I mean, you know, being in an RV. Going across the country, I mean, people just don't do that. People say, hey, can't make it to the event. And so I think it's such an amazing example that you are setting for all of these individuals that you're going to go inspire in Las Vegas. and You'll continue to inspire in, in everything that you do. Where did your discipline come from? I mean, you don't build a following. You don't become number one in the world at anything. You don't have 1.6 million customers because you lack discipline and work ethic. So where did work <laughs> ethic start for you? Where did you learn those lessons? One of my favorite stories is like an actually really powerful, positive childhood story of mine. Uh, my grandfather was just a workaholic and he always kept his brain really, really sharp with I don't even know what, like, I don't know if you ever had a parent or a grandparent who was working into their nineties for no good reason. Um, not like a job, but he always wanted to stay sharp. And I remember asking him one time, I was, this is my earliest memory. Maybe I'm like two and a half years old. I have my hands on my hips and he's working downstairs in his basement. And I said, granddaddy, why do you work so hard? All you do is work, work, work. And he looked at me and he said, baby girl, someday you're going to understand. And it's kind of like I have moments like like now as an example where I go, I worked my ass off and I still work really hard. But for so long, a lot of my discipline, I think, and my hard work and my determination just came from being thrown way too early into leadership roles. Uh, no nine-year-old should have to become the head of their household um, for all intents and purposes. But I learned that work from a young age. My first job was when I was 13. Money could actually help control things. And so if you were disciplined in what you were doing, uh, you could create, like I said, predictable results. A major part of reaching your peak performance is having the right people in your life or organization. And to help with that, we are proud to introduce our strategic partner, Spark Companies. No matter the industry or workforce needs, Spark Companies provide extremely effective solutions for leadership recruitment, staffing, and other workforce solutions. For our listeners, Spark is offering a no-cost consultative session to help identify your specific needs and how they might be able to help. To schedule your free consultation, head over to bennewman.net forward slash spark. That's bennewman.net forward slash S-P-A-R-K. Now, let's get back into the show. John Gordon, welcome back to The Burn. And the one truth, it is your best work yet. I can't wait to dive in. Welcome, John. Ben, so great being with you. You know, Pavarotti was asked about his incredible discipline for his craft and what made him so great. And he said, you know, everyone thinks it's discipline. He said, it's not discipline, it's devotion. He was so devoted mm -hmm. to his craft, it drove his discipline. I would argue that the burn is actually driven by love. And when you love it and you want to be great at it, discipline is a lot easier. It's like you're flowing with the water. You're surfing and riding the wave rather than swimming upstream, which is what it feels like when you don't love it. Discipline is hard. No one has to make Tom Brady go work out and train when he was right. trying to do the best. 
When you want to be the best, you want to actually go and be disciplined. When you're loving doing what you do, you love shooting, it's easy. It's when you don't love it that makes it hard. So did it make you think? I was Zooming with the Cowboys, teaching this whole thing that's in the book now to the Cowboys coaching staff. And they said, John, how do we help our players get to a high state of mind? I said, you've got to get to a high state of mind. When you're in a higher state, you'll help your players be in a higher state. But going back, you're going to be on this roller coaster. You're going to have the ebbs and flows. And when you're in that low state and you feel like, you know, you're going down this roller coaster, you want to jump off often. And the key is to not jump off, to realize there's going to be ebbs and flows of low states and high states. But when you're in that low state, nothing's wrong. Nothing's broken. Stop thinking something's wrong. Just stay on the roller coaster. And so often we ride the wave back up to a higher state of mind. And book one within the book explains a lot of that, as well as how to elevate your state of mind and also what causes your state of mind to go down in the negative thoughts. And that's the big thing, Ben, as you know, so many people don't realize how negative thoughts affect them and make them feel. And this explains it. And this gives visuals. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. And what I love about this is it helps so many athletes. The ones I've shared this with, the coaches I shared this with all last year, I never had more conversations than I've had since sharing these ideas. And I want to give credit to this guy, Garrett Kramer, who actually taught me about low state of high state of mind. He's the one who taught me about the clutter and the clarity. And once I saw it, it really helped me. And I was able to teach others. What I've been able to also explain is how this all ties into the one truth and how low state actually has to do with separateness and high state has to do with oneness, which we'll get to, I'm sure, later in the, in the talk. When you're looking at the circumstance and you give that circumstance power or you think that circumstance has power over you, it affects you. You look at the crowd. You see the noise of the crowd. You hear the boos or the cheers. And that crowd can actually affect you in a good way or in a bad way if you let it. You can also deal with situations where there's expectations and you can allow those pressure and expectations to affect you because you're looking at the expectations of others and saying, I got to live up to those expectations. Those are all external focused. The key with the Miami Heat and other teams, when they look inside, they're so much more powerful. When I'm looking outside, because outside is just noise. And guess what? Djokovic takes those boos when he hears boos and actually believes that they're cheers. He makes them mm. mean different. <clears throat> It's just noise that our brain is interpreting and we give meaning to what we hear and you can assign meaning to whatever you want. And so he's assigning a new meaning when he hears a sound. So it's really never the circumstance. It's never the sound. It's knowing we always create from the inside out. Going to Clemson, they created an inside out culture where the power's on the inside. Wherever we go, we're Clemson. Whoever we're playing, we're Clemson. We don't care who we're playing. It's our game. It's what we do. It's how we show up. It's the energy we bring. It's the power we have inside of us. And that, that's the whole coffee bean message as well. The power is inside of you. That's why the coffee bean message is so powerful. Carrot egg and coffee bean. The coffee bean transforms the environment. And you do as well. And the heat culture, I would argue, the only reason why it works and what you're saying is because culture is the living, breathing essence of what an organization values, believes, thinks, says, and does. So the culture is only powerful when it's coming from within your organization, within your team, and within each person. So when the culture is being lived from the inside out, that's power. But in this book, there's there's one, the, the training camp, there's the coaching, but then there's the understanding and the teaching that, that blends science, psychology, 
and also the understanding of biblical principles that actually are really important when understanding the one truth, not from a religious perspective at all, but understanding oneness and separateness. And once you see it, you won't be able to unsee it. So I can't wait for people to, to read about that as well. Well, I can't wait for everybody to read it, John. Thank you again for the continued impact you make on my life, the continued challenge, uh, and continuing to write books and to not stop. You know, that's such an ultimate act of leadership is you never being seduced by success or the last great book or I finally made it. You just keep pushing and bringing others along. And so I just, I thank you so much. Today is his daughter Skyla's first birthday. So a big happy birthday to Skyla. And my friend Gerard Adams, man, long time overdue. Welcome to The Burn. Oh, brother, thank you so much for that welcome. And it's an honor to be here. Yeah, man, right back to talking about my father. I mean, on the other half was my mother. And in that moment when the stock market crashed and I had lost millions of dollars in the stock market and all having to sell my exotic cars and move out of the penthouse, I was so ashamed in that moment because all my friends were graduating college at that moment and looking for jobs. And I was like the one kid who made it, quote unquote. They didn't know that I had just lost everything. And I sat with my mom. She was the one person I went to. And I told my mother what had happened. And she said, you know, I wasn't ever going to tell you this. But when I immigrated to this country from Colombia, I had absolutely nothing. And with your uncles and aunts and your grandparents, we moved into a studio apartment in Jersey City. And one day I was walking home from school. And my friend said to me, Jenny, isn't that the building you live in? It's on fire. Mm. My mom ran home and praying that her family would be okay to get out of there. And they got out of there. But literally think about coming to this country with nothing. You have a little bit of something and now that burns. And they literally had nothing. My mom had to drop out of high school to go get a job on Canal Street in New York in the winter, never being in New York before to help get a job on this outside in the cold to get a little bit of money to help to provide for my grandparents and to help to get them back on their feet. And my mother's telling me this and tears are rolling down her eyes. And she's like, if I was able to get through mm. that, you best believe that people will come at you and you may lose certain things in life. But when you get knocked down, remember that they'll never take this. And she points to her head and she points to her heart. She goes, they'll never take that. And so you get your ass back up and you do it again. And I just thought about that. I see my mom's, you know, my mom crying and I was like, well, okay, she's right. I got to get back up and I, if I did it once, I can do it again. So it's always been a fire to provide, give back to my, my parents, give back to my mother. And that paired with always feeling like an underdog. And I know if someone's listening to this, you know what that feels like. And I grew up getting jumped for no reason and, and just, just went through a really tough upbringing, a lot of violence, a ton of violence. And I just always felt like an underdog, whether it was my grades or sports or then getting into these fights, like people just attacking me with bats and, and just, I, I always felt like that in my whole life. And I guess that's why the, the path of entrepreneurship really was the path for me. And so for me, I've always just had a chip on my shoulder that it's like, you know, I, I'm gonna go out there and and prove that I, that I have the capabilities of making a huge impact in this planet and, and becoming massively successful. And I've, I've, that's over, I still have that underdog mentality, but now it's less about trying to prove myself to everyone or and, and really just me wanting to be the absolute best leader I can be for my family and for the legacy that I get to lead. So you shared the burn, how it motivated you when you were down. 
How does it now motivate you when you're up to be this leader that's the example for other leaders? Yeah, that's a really great question. And for me, it's just my faith. You know, I, my, my buddy Brandon calls it the God pocket. And, it, and, and for me, it was just like, I know I'm not done yet. And I started asking myself, why did this happen at 30 years old? Why do I have all of this? Why did I bounce back? And now I, again, have millions and millions of dollars. And, it, and I knew at this point in time, it wasn't for the exotic cars. It wasn't to have more Rolex watches or anything like that. I knew that there was a bigger purpose and I started to really start to get clear and ask myself, what is that purpose? And really just start connecting more deeply with my faith and start just asking God, connecting more to God. And through that meditation and through prayer, I just felt it. Like it was just like this deep, deep voice inside of me that just was just like, I'm chosen. And I, and I feel we all are. And I just, for me, it was like, but there's only, a few that answered the call. And Ben, when, like you made a really big impact on me, man. You know, at Ed's house, the way you came up to me, you spoke life into me and you may not even have known I was going through a mm. tough time. It's been hard going through, learning how to step into fatherhood in a way that still allows me to be the face of my movement and building businesses and all the things. And you spoke life into me that made a, it made an impact on me. And I will, I will always remember that and appreciate you, brother, for the leader that you are. So thanks for having me on the show. I can't thank you enough for those words. I'm going to let you drop the mic with that one. So I had the blessing of meeting our guest, Sean Whalen, out at an event for our friend Ed Milet out in Palm Springs about four or five months ago. I am not going to hold back. I have been wanting to meet Sean for a long time. So I walk up. I'm like, Sean, great to have the opportunity to meet you. We only had like a few minutes together. I wanted more. And like in person, there's this fire and this passion that you show up with. There's a way that you think. I can see that you're not seduced by success. There's a fire that comes inside of you. Where does that come from for you? Why, why do we experience this fire that comes from you? I thought for 30 years of my life, it was the, it was the status. It was the, the, the checking off the boxes of, of the, the financial acumen of the business success. And uh, it took almost 40 years for me to understand it. The game that I'm playing is the game of life. Literally waking up is the single greatest gift that I've got. And it's not some hokey pokey, airy fairy, like mystical, magical thing. The, the, the reality is the money game's an easy game. The business game's an easy game. It's the fact that I get to wake up every single day. I've had, I can't even tell you how many people in the last two or three years that have passed away that were close to me. And I realized like my clock is ticking. So I, I truly became obsessed with life. Not like yeah, I love the money. I love the business. I love the game. I love the competition, but fucking life, like realizing I'm living this one dimensional reality and there's millions of destinations around the world that I haven't visited yet. Places that I haven't seen, books that I haven't read, people that I haven't talked to, people that I haven't had a chance to sit down and smoke cigars with. And this just became this insane obsession to squeeze every single second out of every single day and make it like the best fucking moment that I could even fathom. So how important has the core four been for you to attack each day? Not to just live each day, but to live it and attack it. It's as, it's as important to me as air, is breathing. Because I spent most of my life being that guy, wake up, slam the coffee, go do, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the alpha and I'm just going to, I'm going to tackle everything that comes my way. And at the end of the day, I'm the guy left like burning the candle at both ends, like not being a present father, not being a present husband, not being a good leader, just burning myself out. So I at about 33, 34 years old, I was introduced to core four. And as you study it, you know, a guy like uh, Stephen Covey, who wrote Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, he actually has the trademark and the patent on four core, not core four, four core. And so he wrote that 
30 years ago, he, he coined that phrase. And so guys for years and years and years and years have had these philosophies and these modalities that they use. But when I understood it and I started to become a practitioner of it, it's the same thing as like you become a practitioner of lifting weights or working out your body or investing in your business, realizing that I don't have to eat the elephant in one bite. Like the, the true legends, the guys who make it to Cooperstown are not the guys that are swinging for a freaking grand slam every single time. They're the guys getting on base. It's the Cal Ripkins of the world. You know what I mean? They're not the glitzy, the glamour. They're just getting off base over and over and over again. And my mindset shifted to where it was like, instead of being this dude who's just going to run through life at a thousand miles an hour, trying to just win every single thing, like as big as humanly possible, I just want to get on base with my wife. I want to get on base with my business. I want to get a single in my business every single day. And what happens at the end of a year, I, I, I've got the highest batting average out of anybody. And I'm present with my kids and I'm just getting on base every single day, small little bites. By the time somebody's tried to fit the entire elephant in their mouth, I've already eaten five. And so every single day, I just, I broke everything down through core four into realizing the way that you become a champ. You look at any sport, any sport, dudes put in the time, they put in the dividend, they put in the years of just doing the monotonous, mundane work, whether it's a baseball player, football player, a basketball player. It's just the repetition of the basics, you know? I had a really cool experience with this years ago, and, and I know that you're big into sports and, and, and coaching. I was at a, a Yankees-Red Sox game, and we were at Fenway. And I, we, I got up there about an hour before. You know, I love baseball. I grew up playing baseball. And I'm watching the, the, these players on the field practicing. You've got the, high, two, the, the, two, the two highest paid rosters in Major League Baseball the most valuable baseball players on the fucking planet, the who's who of who's who, right? And they are doing the same shit that I was doing in high school. They're mm -hmm. doing long toss. Coach has the fungal back, hitting the grounders, and they're, they're running the sprints. They're doing the deal. And I was like, holy shit. Derek Jeter doesn't have some fancy you know, contraption. He's doing the same shit. What he did is he mastered the shit. He mastered the basics. He mastered the small fundamental things that I was overlooking most of my career and most of my life. I was trying to win my marriage with one annual vacation. Look, honey, I'm a great husband versus small investments every single day. And so core four for me became the most practical, realistic blueprint that I became addicted to. It became obsessed with is just small investments every single day, literally eating a small bite of the elephant every day. Before you know it, you're eating elephant after elephant after elephant after elephant. Break everything down to the simplest denominator. You woke up today. You got a shot today, right? And I don't care how bad it is. I don't care how shitty everybody in your life is. You won the fucking lottery because I guarantee you, you walk through a cemetery and there's a ton of motherfuckers that are dead in the ground that would give anything to trade places with you. They trade places with you no matter how shitty your life is, no matter how dark the hole is, no matter how much money you owe, no matter how much your wife fucking hates you, husband hates you, whatever. They would trade places with you in a second. So remember that shit. You woke up. You woke up. You have another fucking day. You have another shot to completely reverse engineer the entire game, to completely close the old book and start authoring the new one. It is completely 100% up to you. This week on The Burn, we're taking you to Las Vegas Boot Camp, where Ben had a very transparent and eye-opening conversation with Olympic gold medalist Justin Gatlin. Justin shares the extreme ups and downs he faced what it was like to race against the fastest humans on earth, and how he discovered his alter ego, J-Gat. All that and more, starting now. Been waiting to do this for a long time. We have, man, we have. We've been talking about it, now we get to do it. Exactly. I'm gonna get right down to it. What is it like 
to win gold. Can you take us into the stadium and help us better understand what that feeling is like and the emotion and that experience? All right, I'm gonna take you to 2004, Athens, Greece. Uh, my first Olympics, and I was a young guy, maybe 20 years old. And I remember coming out, warming up for my race, and then we came through the tunnel, we came onto the track. And once we came onto the track, we were there already like 15 minutes before time. And that's usually unheard of. You're, they run a tight ship when it comes to the Olympics. So you're out there, let's go, let's go. So I got onto that track. I had a teammate named Sean Crawford who I trained with that whole season. So we had blood, sweat, and tears together. And we knew that we always said to each other before we went out there, we gave each other a fist bump and said, hey, ain't nobody between us. If you get first, I'm getting second. If you get in seventh, I'm getting eighth. But it's no one gonna come between us. We're gonna win together or we're gonna lose together. And that's the mentality that we went out to the track with. So I already was like energized to be, be there. And I was at the peak of what it is to be a track and field athlete, the Olympics. It's what you dreamed about. You know, little kids watching television and saying, that's what I wanna be one day. And I'm standing there at that starting line now. 15 minutes before time though, so, you start doing your warm-ups, you start kind of popping out the blocks, and then you realize, okay, I'm warmed up, but now I still have another whole 10 minutes before I have to go out and really compete. And the stadium's full. Over 100,000 people inside the stadium. And the next thing you know, they start playing Greek music. And the stadium is just loving it. They're going crazy. So the energy started going from a moment that's only gonna last for nine seconds to felt like you were getting ready to watch a heavyweight match. You, you were about to see titans that were going to battle each other, who was going to be the best in the world. That race was going to determine who was the fastest human alive. So me stepping onto that track, when we got down in the blocks, the whole place was quiet. You can hear a pin drop. You can feel the heat of the opponents next to you, lane three and lane five. And you can just feel the heat coming off their shoulders because you're, you're this close to each other. And all you hear is set. And then when you hear set, you knew after that gun goes off, history is going to be made. And I don't realize if anybody in the audience, if you've ever been a part of history, you realize history is about to be made. Like when the first astronaut stepped on the moon, he knew before he stepped. This is about to be history. That's exactly what it felt like. Mm. When the gun goes off, the stadium is full of lights and flashes from photographs and cameras. You can hear cheers and roars. <sighs> and the craziest thing is, to run that fast, you feel like you're in the matrix. You feel like everything is moving slow. You feel like all your opponents around you are moving slow. But you're running like 27 to 30 miles per hour on your feet. <laughs> <laughs> I remember, coming, I remember coming across 10 meters before the finish line. And at that point in time, I was just maybe a, a hair in front, of, in front of the whole field. And I remember in my mind thinking, I'm about to win the Olympics, oh my God. And it was a little version of myself in my head jumping up and down, like, oh, I'm about to win this. So I come across the line. I win it in 9.85, second place was 9.86, third place was 9.87, fourth place was 9.88, so it was that close. So you can imagine what it felt like 
in a situation like that, winning by that sum of a margin, but fourth place losing at that sum of a margin as well. And that's what it makes up. You got to realize you train for the, just for the Olympics, you train four years for that moment. And that moment's not even a moment. It's nine seconds, well under a minute. And that moment is going to, that moment is going to define what happens to your career going forward. Are you a champion? Because if you're a champion now, you're on top of that podium, you get sponsors thrown at you, you get so much love coming from all different directions. But those people who don't make it to that top, it's almost back to the drawing board. And I had the most mature moment in that time when they, before the gun went off, I looked up and I said, God, I worked so hard for this. I've never been in this situation before, but please let me use every bit of fiber, every bit of faith that I have in this race. And if I don't win, I'm more than happy going back to the drawing board. Gun went off and rest was history. It was amazing, felt amazing. <laughs> But you have to ask what I do with the medal after I got the medal. So once I went to the whole stadium and, and, and celebrated, did my victory lap, and once I got my medal around my neck and I had the wreath around my head, it was the most beautiful moment I've ever experienced, be able to look up at that flag, national anthem's playing for you. And the people in the stadium who are Americans, they have a tear in their eye for you because all the hard work that you put in. I go back to that Olympic Village, I take that medal off of my neck, I look at it, I wrap the ribbon around it, and I tuck it in the side pocket of my, my carry-on bag. And I said, the work's not finished. I have 200 meters, I have four by one to go back out there and do. I can't be, this, I can't go out there and say, my job is done, because I have some more to give. And that's what I did. Thank you for being an example of what it means to live with a champion's mindset. Boot camp family, this is one of the greatest champions to ever run the face of the earth. Give it up for Justin Gatlin. Sean Casey, the mayor, welcome to The Burn. Oh, Ben, thanks, man. I'm fired up to be on The Burn, man. My dad was right. And my dad's message to me real quick was preparation meaning opportunity. Because I always said, I want to play college baseball, dad. He goes, well, if you want to play college baseball, he goes, your opportunity probably will come along one day, but you better be prepared for it. It'd be a shame if you weren't. So the next year I started JV, the next year I started varsity my junior year, and he was right. I was getting exponentially better by hitting every day. By my senior year, I was one of the best players in the area. And it was just, you know, I was, I was so grateful all the swings that I took and Frank Porco Tuesday nights. But the passion for hitting was, I really became obsessed, obsessed with getting better. And the other part of this, of this um, thing with my dad and I, as a, you know, as a father-son, was my senior year, I, this is the opportunity I wanted to play college baseball. And I was so frustrated because I was like, man, I don't have one offer from anybody, not division one, division two, division three. And I am one of the better hitters in the area now, <laughs> but you know, but when, but when you, I go to, when I go to a tryout, Ben, you know, I go run the 60, you know, I didn't run that well. They, I'd get cut and I'd be so frustrated because I'm like, is this a track tryout or are we doing baseball here? You know what I mean? <laughs> and it was like so frustrating. So I go home to my dad. And I'm like, dad, I don't know where the colleges are. No one's, no one's, you know, calling. No one's coming. I don't know what's going on. And he goes, I never forget. He said to me, he goes, Sean, he goes, you're right. He goes, remember this. No one is coming. 
No wow. one's coming. He goes, he said, no one's coming for you, man. He goes, in a lesson in life, you better learn to play offense in your life and not defense and be waiting for everybody to come to you because they're not coming. You know, you, you can see at the tryouts, you're getting cut and this and that. He goes, why don't you go to them? Because my dad had just started a company, Casey Chemical, at the time, and he, we were he would send out all these new all these letters. Like every month, he would send out these these flyers, these brochures. I knew because I licked all the envelopes. You know, every month it was ridiculous. <laughs> so he was like, "Why don't you do what I'm doing?" He goes, "Listen, tomorrow after school, why don't you sit down and write 30 letters to the 30 colleges you want to go to, Division one through three." He goes. And, and, and let them know who you are, you know? And, and it's funny, now with social media, you could send videos out. But back then right. in 1992, you had to send letters. So I did, <laughs> he goes, so I, I never forget, I come home from school, bam, bam, my dad meets me at the door, brings me into his office, office right, you know, he, his office was in our house. We sit down at the office and we start writing letters. Okay, who's your first letter? Hey, I got a uh, University of Clemson. I'd love to go there. Well, write them a letter. I want to go to Penn State. Write them a letter. How about Marietta, Division Three over here? Write them one. College of Wooster, Moorhead State. Whoever would listen, I wrote these letters to. And I remember getting up. My dad was like, hey, write one more letter. He goes, University of Richmond sent you a brochure last year at the Keystone wow. State Games. <clears throat> write them a letter, too. So last letter, bam, University of Richmond, thanks for the brochure. Send it out. Senior year comes. That's I'm where you went. Yes, and that's where I went. Senior year comes, having a great, having a great um, season. Wow. Four games to go in the year, dude. I go four for four with eight RBIs against this team named Montour. And I remember my coach saying to me, hey, Case, he goes, I was walking out the first base in the seventh. He goes, hey, how many hits you have? I go, four hits. How many ribbies? Eight ribbies, four doubles. He goes, that's incredible, man. He turned, he turned and looked to the left. He goes, you know why? He goes, you see that guy behind the backstop? I go, yeah. He goes, that's the University of Richmond coach. He drove six hours to come see you play on the count of the letter you wrote him two months ago. And sure enough, man, I went to University of Richmond. I, I ended up keeping the same motto of hit every day, hit every day, hit every day. My junior year, I, I won the NCAA batting title, hit 461. It was the number one hitter in Division One baseball and became a second-round pick of the Cleveland Indians. Only reason I say all that stuff, man, is because only seven years earlier was that conversation with my dad of, can you go talk to the coach and tell him, I should be playing over this guy. And I do think about, had my dad decided to go talk to that coach, maybe we're probably not talking today because I've become probably a fringe high school player. I, I got to tie something together here because it, it, it's really beautiful what you're articulating for all of us, backed up by, by all of this work. And here's what stands out to me. I know there are people listening who you're struggling or you're waiting, or you have fears and you have doubts. When I hear you talk about all the work you put in because you listened to your dad, all of that belief and passion that we feel from you comes from the work that you did. And so for those of you that are listening, if you're struggling in your ability to move forward, to take action, it's not happening fast enough for me, you had the aggressive patience to do what needed to be done every day. And then your dad was right. You got to create awareness to let people know who you are. Nobody's coming to bang down your door. You got to go <laughs> knock down the door of opportunity. And that was more action that you had to take. A lot of people put in the work, hey, look at me. You should come to me. You still created the awareness. It's incredible. It's just incredible what he's doing off the field. And that's what the burn is all about. 
It's a daily choice, just like he said, one pitch at a time. It's a daily choice for you, one day at a time. Connect to the burn. Let it ignite that why and that purpose. Todd Herman, welcome to the burn. Newman, I've been pumped for this one. I wouldn't wish the pain that I went through with my mother on anybody, but it's given me a burn inside to not waste a day. Yeah. So how important is it to actually attack that burn rather than to run from it, which a lot of people tend to do, or to suppress it? Well, my, my frame that I try to give people is I talk about capabilities, except it's spelled C-A-P-E dash abilities. Because mm. nature, I think, is our greatest teacher. You know, if something doesn't exist in nature, I'm going to double tap on that and I'm going to question whether it's true. A, a good example is that water isn't just always good. There's hyperhidrosis, so you can have too much water. When I'm floating in the middle of the ocean, the last thing I want is more seawater. Or when I'm in the desert, there's hypo. I need more water. So I, going back to that idea of we have an experience in our life that could be traumatizing or it could be a difficult or it could be a challenge. And most people, to your point earlier, they attach a negative meaning to it. Well, in nature, it can't only be negative. There can also be something that's very positive there. And so what you're talking about is that that experience that happened for you, you can use that thing to fuel you. That's it. To burn you up. And for me, I had some terrible experiences when I was a young kid and being sexually molested and assaulted at a, a church camp over the course of several days. And, you know, that trauma ruled a large part of my life. But it also, I also created some coping mechanisms from it that ended up serving me as becoming a fantastic coach to elite athletes and public figures and entertainers around the world and growing a massive peak performance and mental game coaching and training company. It was just when I, matured later on in life that I realized that, oh, my great capability that I earned from that experience was extraordinary compassion for other people. If you were to say, well, Todd, what's your burn? When I started out, Ben, in 97, 98, the mental game coaching world wasn't a thing. <laughs> coaching wasn't yeah. a thing. <laughs> I mean, it felt like I was selling snake oil to people back then in, in so many ways. But I knew that for me, when I played college football and I was a nationally ranked badminton player, I'm not a physically gifted human being. I'm not 6'4", 245 pounds. My, my strength was very much my inner game. And I loved talking to other athletes about it. And then I accidentally fell into a business when, you know, Deborah, this one mom asked me to mentor her son in 97, September of 97. And I said, yeah, sure. And then she was like, okay, Todd, well, how much do you want to charge me? And I was like, oh, how bucks for three sessions, which was my rate for three years. So I was pretty cheap, which by the way, gives you a lot of reps when you're really cheap. But early on in my, early on in my career, I thought I was competing against sports psychologists. And then I went out and I saw some of them speak and I was like, oh, I'm not competing against them because I out care all of them. I actually care about these mm. and they don't care. They're doing it as a career. Um, I had one lady that I saw speak in front of a, an academy. It was a hockey academy in Canada. And literally her opening part of the talk was, um, I don't normally talk to kids because I actually don't like working with kids, but I hope some of you can kind of get some things out of my talk. And I was sitting there going, you've lost them. They're not going to listen to a word that you say. Mm. And success for me, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm going to win. Like, this is going to be so easy because I'm going to outcare them. But my burn for growing that business was... 
there was a 16-year-old kid who I got at the end of his kind of playing career, unfortunately. He was highly ranked when he was 13 years old. He got sold a bill of goods on how to develop himself and his mental game, essentially his inner game and his own athleticism. That was completely false. It was not how you actually develop an athlete. And it cost him self-confidence. It cost Mm. him a positive attitude and it cost him his playing career. There are a bunch of 13 year old kids out there because that was who I was serving at the time who I'll be damned if I let some freaking clown that just because they have a couple of letters behind their name and they stayed in school for eight years, give these kids a bunch of really bad ideas about what it will take to get to where they're going to go or the principles or the methods or the tactics for how they can develop themselves mentally. That was my, like I cared about because I was that 13 year old kid too at one point in time. So that's going to cause me to wake up every single day and chop wood and carry water so that I can build a business that's rooted in actually giving a shit because our core value number one in that business was we will outcare everyone. Get out of your own head of what you think you're capable of right now because that's a lie. It's not true. You're capable of so much more. And you're always bigger than those fears, those uncertainties, and those doubts. You're always going to find a way. And how I know that's true is you're here. You're here now. That means that you've gone through a bunch of things and you're here now. You haven't quit. You're not six feet in the ground. You're here now, which means you can be here tomorrow by stepping towards some fear, some small doubt that you've got. And then you're going to be feeding a future version of you that I selfishly want to be brought to life because I want more people, more human beings that are out there doing things that light them up, doing things that scare them because it's going to make the world a better place for my young kids. And now you understand why Todd and I get along. Now you understand why Todd is on the burn. And now you understand why I'm going to let that be the mic drop. The guy that I want to listen to who's going to talk about Buying back your time and leverage is Dan Martell. So, Dan, I can't thank you enough for the opportunity to read the book before it was released. It's had a profound impact on me. So all I can say is a big thank you and welcome to The Burn and for putting up with that long introduction because it was deserved. Dude, it's an honor. So what can you share about the importance of capacity in the 10-80-10 ratio? Yeah, I'll I'll unpack a lot of stuff. First off, the 1080-10 principle is because there are creative endeavors, writing a book, social media, um, speaking, training, coaching that requires an input. You know, and I talk in the book about Steve Jobs where his initial, it's the initial 10% is the ideation and the through line, the storytelling, the creative like you know, this is the thing we're trying to solve. This is the big monster. This is why it's important. Here's the way I'm, I'm seeing it. And then you give it to obviously a team member or a competent team like Steve would do at Johnny Ives in the design studio at Apple. And then they would go off and they would do the research and the ideation and the CNC machine to come up with prototypes and play with things and to kind of move it forward that, 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 the next 80%. And then once Johnny felt like he had something that was like good enough for Steve, then he would come back and he would evaluate and talk about the final finishing touches then and really where the rubber meets the road or the implementation component of that last 10%. That's Steve on stage at, you know, the Apple events unleashing his thing. 
Uh, I'll give you one that a lot of people are familiar with, Gary Vaynerchuk. Everybody knows Gary V. Here's the deal. He has a, I would guess, a $3 million a year payroll of a team that sits outside of his office called Team Gary. This is not this is not VaynerMedia. This is not VaynerX. This is Team Gary of about 25 people that are his 80%. And he literally interacts with them using the 108010 rule. He probably doesn't call it that. Um, I learned this, you know, through conversations with Caleb, his previous head of uh, videography, because Caleb would say like, Gary would sit down with us and brainstorm ideas, tell us where he said certain things. We would go grab clips, ideate, and then we would, we would just, and this is so beautiful the way he does it. We would come up with different creative outputs, and then we have this internal iMessage chat, and all the videographers, he has like four or five, will post clips at Fort Gary to try to get his attention, and then he downloads them to his phone, and he's still the guy that's doing that last 10% publishing them on social media. So even a guy that's running you know, arguably a $200 million a year business with more demand on his time than anything else has found a way to create leverage, but still feel connected so that there's soul and spirit in the work that he's doing. And that's why I think the 108010 rule, you'll see it amongst so many different people from Elon Musk and others. They just may not call it that. I've crystallized and codified that so that I know how to, you know, when it comes to creative projects, get more output. It was the most strategic and intentional way I've ever seen the concept crafted. And that's where I'm saying this is not a book where it's going to hit a bestseller list, it's got legs because it's finally been articulated in the right way and delivered in the right way where people will speak about that for years to come. We have got to take action. We cannot be part of the culture where far too many people say how great they want to be. And then we have a conversation with their action and it's a completely different story. This book will help you to taking back your time to take that action with no excuses. So, all right, Dan, here, I got to ask this question. So we talk about the burn. You're 265 pounds. You're doing computer programming, probably with a bag of Doritos in front of you. And, and a 100%. Coke. You nailed it. Cool Ranch. Cool Ranch. <laughs> cool Ranch. So Cool Ranch Doritos and a Coke. Maybe it was even Coke, Coke Slurpee. And you're just downing this. You're so far removed. And let's just go personal. You're like, I'm going to go run an ultra marathon. I'm going to be an Iron Man. What was your burn then? What was it that caused you to say enough is enough? I got to change. Dude, I remember the moment. I'm at my friend's house and um, there's a party going on. I'm like 22, I think, at that point because I started coding when I was 17. And I just put on massive amount of weight, like just sitting there teaching myself how to code and, and just working on projects. And I sit down on his couch. Is that his parents' house because we're in our 20s? And I break the couch, like this old Chesterfield, like the wood bracing snaps and the whole, he, he gets super upset and he's like, and he just swears at me. He's like, F Martell, fuck, you're a big dude, man. You can't sit down like that. And I'm just like, and I was like, dude, I'm not that big. And he's like, yeah, you are. And oh. I was like, and I literally went into the bathroom later and he had a scale there and I got on it, man. And I didn't like what I saw. I didn't think I was that heavy. I didn't think I was that big. And the, it read 265. And I will tell you, it had such a profound impact on me. That's why I think today I'm such a fan of measuring our results. You know, uh, this guy, Wes Watson, he says, the most common thing in the world is a consistent man with no results. 
And I just, I realize, you know, a lot of people, the most, the most common thing in the world is a consistent man with no results. Think about it. I, I, I live in a pretty cool spot with a great view and I see all these people drive to work every day and they are consistently on time, accurate and do the same thing every week. And they got no new results. And I just think it's important for us to audit ourselves and say like, Hey, is this actually serving me? Is it helpful or is it hurting me? Here's the thing. Every human on earth is here to do two things. One, become the best expression of themselves that they can be. Ed talks about this. This is just part of everything. And then two, share that person with the world. Will and I will always be connected because the bond of our mothers. I'll never forget the day that he contacted me when he was with the Oakland Raiders to let his, let me know that his mother had passed away. Bill and Kathy Compton are amazing people. Kathy was a special woman, just like my mom. Her support, love, and challenge for Will has made him the man that he is today, just like my mother, and her fight and her perseverance made me the man that I am today. Kathy, this special episode is for you. Bill, this special episode is for you. For raising a son the right way. For raising a son to constantly challenge himself to understand what's possible and to be his best. And Will, I can never thank you enough for your trust, your friendship. And I promise you, brother, you are only scratching the surface. I am in your corner forever, and the best is yet to come. Congrats on an incredible nine years, really 10. Congrats on that clock starting for the Hall of Fame. I love you, brother. We are in this fight together forever. Enjoy this very special episode of The Burn. And I think a lot of these guys who now reach out to you is because you've become such a great example because of the fact that you were ready. That you didn't say, hey, I, it's it, no, the underdog gave you that chip on your shoulder. And I think that's something you embraced and then you tackled. What are the little things that I can do? And I remember asking you that first meeting, I'm like, hey, what made you a captain at Nebraska? And you were like, hey, I used to pay attention to nutrition. I used to read every day. I would break down film. I'd, I said, well, let's start doing those things again. And then you did, as opposed to saying, you know, woe is me. I'm on the depth chart, man. I ain't going to make it. I mean, I appreciate what you're saying here, but like, this ain't happening for me. And you stayed focused on what you can control and you were ready for that moment. Yeah, it, it, it's hard. You, you talk about like embracing the underdog mentality too. It's it's definitely like there's a lot of pride with that. I look back now and I'm more proud of coming from that situation than I was at the time. I know at the time, you know, I remember a, a, one of my best friends, John, he, him and his wife came into town. And I remember telling him like, hey, this is going to be the only year I play. Like this fucking sucks. I hated training camp. I hated, I, I, I just, it wasn't fun. It, it, the reason why it wasn't fun is because I wasn't seen as a guy. <laughs> and then, And then the ball bounces your way. And then when you're running with the twos and then you're getting some opportunity, the moment that I'm sure we'll get into and talk about, and then you start getting seen as like, you know, oh shit, this kid can play. I, you know, I was on practice squad that whole year, but anytime you're behind the eight ball, it's not, it fucking sucks. It's like when I didn't get drafted, it's not, not, not even the get drafted part, but when I didn't get invited to the combine, like that was a tough pill to swallow. Cause again, I was just mad at the, at the world. It's just like, uh. You know, but you ultimately have to understand that the sun rises the next day and you have to either change your outlook on it 
and start progressing toward whatever you want, like whatever you have written down. Um, but what actually in that moment, like that mindset that you had, because that was far before, you know, I appreciate when you try to give me credit and things, but you always did the work, you always did the thinking, but well before me, was it your mom, was it your dad? Who instilled that belief in you? Well, without getting emotional, it would just be, you don't know it at the time, but your parents are like, you know, they're working their, you know, they're working their dick off to, to provide. You don't know like that you're poor or low class or nothing because you don't know any different. And it, it's small things. It's like, I remember my mom saving up box tops from cereal boxes and doing all the new tricks of the trade to save money, cut costs. And, you know, they busted their ass to put every amount of money into our sport camps. I fucking hated wrestling. My dad loved it. We were solid at it. My brother was, a, was a fucking animal. Yeah. My dad's an, yeah, yeah, yeah. I hated fucking working out and my dad making me work out. He made, he'd make me work out. Like, you know, they wanted us, we were, we figured out that we could play sports and I wanted to go to football camps and they did whatever they could to travel baseball team. And those are things that you reflect on. Then when you do get the opportunities, it's like, fortunately, my dad showed me Rocky at a young age and talked about Walter Payton, that he would run hills until he puked. And mm. when I'd get in trouble, he'd be like, well, you know, Walter Payton, when he'd show up and not have the dishes done in the middle of the night, they'd wake him up out of bed. And you had all this storytelling based on motivations because I love football. So there was, you know, <clears throat> yeah, them, like them, it, it's hard to articulate everything they did, but recalling all these stories, it's, see, when you grow up in a county like St. Francis County, and I'm not not the shit on it, but you're in a small town. The closest city's an hour away. You're not, it's a generational, it's a generational area. Not that people don't get out and they're bums and everything else, but you don't know any different because you don't leave a whole lot. You don't know how to think big. Mm. The only way to think big is movies and sports and, oh, the Cowboys won the Super Bowl. My dad buys a whole DVD set. And then I'm watching these documentaries and you're just thinking, man, this is the coolest fucking thing in the world. Like, how do I do that? Writing, I want to be an NFL player on when I'm in eighth grade on when we're in career classes. And knowing that everybody thinks like, yo, this fucking kid's ridiculous. Being a, I was a, you know, your boy was a stud running back back in the day. I'm talking the pup, but I wanted to be the next Walter Payton. I wanted to be Eddie George because I knew I was taller and bigger. And you wanted to be the greatest running back of all time, only to find out you're a defensive guy. But you just knew when I was going to the next phase, Nebraska, that there were people in our area that like, we'll see what he does. People always fizzle out. Nobody ever really makes it. Um, So that accumulated with, learning that kind of background. I know I kind of went off on tangents but there. I but. just want to just capture some. It's a huge testament to your parents and capturing that mindset. It's one thing to see the movies, but it's another thing. I know how hard your parents worked, but also hammered and kept instilling those values. Because not only you, there were three collegiate athletes in your house and there were three kids in your house. Yeah. So it, it's a pretty amazing thing, you know, when you look back at how amazing your parents are and the job that they did. It's insane, man. <laughs> It's bittersweet, but I'm excited for the next chapter, this game, this process, all of it. It's all set me up for my next chapters and
Um, I'm excited, but yeah, man, it's not forever. Enjoy the moments that you do get with everything, with what you love and be able to look back on them fondly and with gratitude. But shout out to you guys, big hugs, tiny kisses, be a fucking wolf. This episode of The Burn Podcast is powered by BenNewmanCoaching.com, your number one source for increasing consistency in your life and building the mental toughness habits required to live the life of your dreams. From self-paced courses to live coaching with Ben and everything in between, head over to BenNewmanCoaching.com and join the thousands of members working to unlock their peak performance every day.